Hello, listeners. I'm your host, Dean Putong, a rising senior at Yale University studying history and political science. I'm an intern here at the Benicia Historical Museum back in my hometown for this summer. Today, I'm bringing you the second episode of the Benicia Historical Museum Quarantine CamelCast. With me once again is Elizabeth Duarte, the executive director here at the museum. How are you today? Dean, I'm very well, thank you, and I'm really excited to have you here again. This is so interesting for me as well as our listeners. Well, there's nothing better to do in this quarantine than talk about history, so <laughs> thank you for being here. We have an interesting and important topic to delve into, Manifest Destiny and the Western Expansion of the United States. A very deceptively complex idea. Most of us may have heard this term thrown around. May draw up images of pioneers, stage wagons, and especially here in California, of the gold rush. Through this informal discussion, I hope that not only Miss Duarte and I can learn a few things, but everyone listening might be inspired to explore the history of this topic. So, Miss Duarte, what do you think of when you hear manifest destiny? Well, I have an opinion as to what it means, but after our last podcast, I actually looked up the definition of the word manifest. Manifest is defined as being clear or obvious to the eye or mind and or something that becomes apparent or is expressed. And I think that helps to understand the phrase manifest destiny. But you're going to expound on that for us. Yeah, my definition is the historical definition, which is often very vague. This is the American concept, a desire to expand westward. So to explain this fully, I think we should take a step back first to the original 13 colonies, all on the East Coast, viewed the rest of the continent to the West as untamed, ready to be explored, full of resources. And this also includes the grazing land and the Great Plains and eventually the precious metals found throughout California and Nevada. Maybe we should take a look at the first Continental Congress of 1774 and the concept of continentalism, which... I don't know, might that be a concept which is the precursor of the concept of manifest destiny? Uh, not entirely, but this does provide evidence that the Founding Fathers thought of this idea of spreading throughout the rest of the continent. But the rest of the continent was not necessarily uninhabited. Various Native American peoples first occupied the land throughout the American West before being incorporated into France and Spain's colonial possessions during the Age of Exploration. Uniquely, however... The United States' status as an independent nation, in, in a sense, in America evolved into different colonial policies. The American strategy of exploration and settlement was not identical at all to the other European powers. In particular, we need to, to mention the Spanish mission system beginning in 1769. It was primarily aimed at evangelizing and converting the Native American populations of California. And, of course, this was a strategy uh, that they employed to ensure that they were inculcating their own culture and religion into the Native population as a way to claim the land and make sure that they could keep a hold of the land. And in contrast, the French, who were occupying the Great Lakes region, um, they were actually trading with Native peoples and doing their best to cement trading and military treaties with them as well. Yes, to, so to further explain the American view of the land they would explore and, and annex, um, in contrast to the Spanish and the French, we must first contextualize the important idea of manifest destiny. And to start, 
It was never really a concrete policy or governing strategy, but rather a belief or idea, a cultural duty, maybe. And like all ideas, Manifest Destiny formed from many different aspects of European culture, religion, and attitudes, and continued to evolve with the country that espoused it. So basically, it was the nation's destiny to expand westward. Exactly. So the formation of this destiny evolved alongside uh, American identity. It developed along with the idea of being an American. We can see the beginnings of this ideology all the way back in 1630 with John Winthrop's famous City Upon a Hill lecture, where he illustrates a desire for a virtuous example for the rest of the world, the old world in particular, the Europe they left behind, and this idea of providence, of a God-sent land for them to settle. America as this light in the world, an agrarian nation of farmers, and this idea, this sense of providence and a city on a hill has actually been used by many American politicians up to the modern day. In many ways, I would say that this was an evolution from the idea and the morality, the code of the United States original Puritan founders. Morality and religious values were central to the lives of the first European settlers in what would become the 13 colonies. This was not only a moral duty, but a mission to spread these values westward. This would eventually culminate in the idea of protecting the American experiment. And the American experiment, I want to talk a little bit about this because I took a class with David Blight last semester, who's a foremost expert and historian, especially in 19th, 19th century America. And he talks about this idea of Americans continually defending this experiment of democracy against old world monarchical uh, values. So the idea of this American experiment being spread westward and protecting the idea of the legitimacy of their government was very important. And of course, the mission of spreading westward found substantial progress with Thomas Jefferson's purchase of the Louisiana Territory in 1803 from France, which practically doubled the size of the United States. I mean, the territory that was added to the United States was 827,000 square miles. And it cost us only $15 million, which is the equivalent of $309 million in U.S. currency today. Yeah, it's incredible to think about how many people live in the Louisiana Purchase today versus how little cost it, it had on America. But this expansion was not always peaceful. The French never had complete control over the land they claimed, and the United States would be in continuous conflict with Native peoples well into the 20th century, such as the Apache Wars in the Southwest, the Trail of Tears under Andrew Jackson with his Indian Removal Act of 1830, and today we see many Native groups seeking compensation for these acts, especially in Oklahoma. There were also significant conflicts with other European powers since the continuous tension with Great Britain in terms of their joint occupation of the Oregon country. And this was only resolved in the Oregon Treaty of 1846, where in passionate American hawks demanded large portions of the territory. Yeah, as you mentioned with the war hawks, 
armed conquest was never out of the question under the concept of manifest destiny. The United States support for the Texas Revolution in 1835 against Mexico and the subsequent ignition of the Mexican-American War in 1846 are two very big examples. And the vast swath of land that would be gained would be documented by journalist John O'Sullivan. And he actually coined the term manifest destiny. He himself was a proponent of Texan statehood and expansion into Mexican land, including where we are today in Benicia. That's right. And the eventual U.S. conquest of these states from California to Colorado was signed under the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo in 1848, which actually completed the destiny, if you will, of the United States because it then stretched from the Atlantic to the Pacific. And of course, the Camel Corps that we were discussing last week, the camels were used by the U.S. military to survey and map the uncharted Western California territory. Yeah, in many cases, the United States rationalized their seizure of already occupied land, justifying it through their own viewpoint of morality and civilization. And the native tribes that occupied these vast stretches were not considered civilized, nor in true ownership of the land they lived on. I can't imagine a greater divide to cross than the cultural concepts that were basically core values of Native American peoples as opposed to American and also European immigrants westward. Native Americans did not even understand the concept of land ownership. They felt that the land was their mother and that human beings were basically the land's children with no claims on the land. Another quote that I read from a Native American when talking about Native Americans' concept of land, the reason why they can't conceive of ownership is because they believe that the earth is the mind of the people and the people are the mind of the earth. There is no separation between the two. And I think that that entire construct is terribly important in realizing the difference between these two groups of people. In addition to which, of course, most Native American cultures have no written language. A number of Native American cultures in California were still nomadic. And you can imagine that immigrants, American or European, could not actually believe that these Native Americans had any right to the land, not only because they weren't civilized, quote-unquote, not only because they had no morality in terms of their own religious viewpoints, but also because there were no boundaries, there were no legal documents, there was nothing registered in a courthouse, and there were no fixed structures. I'm reminded of Eddie Izzard, the British comedian who has a marvelous comedic shtick. Um, He's talking about British colonialism, but I think it's very analogous to the concept of manifest destiny, both in terms of how the American immigrants viewed their claim on the land and also the reaction of the Native peoples in responding to this claim on the land. So there was a lot of that, and we built up empires. We stole countries. That's what you do. That's how you build an empire. We stole countries with the cunning use of flags. Yeah. (laughs) 
just sail around the world and stick a flag in. I claim India for Britain. And they go, you can't claim us, we live here. 500 million of us. Do you have a flag? We don't need a bloody flag. It's our country, you <laughs> No flag, no country. You can't have one. <laughs> That's the rules that I've just made up. A final point I would want to talk about a little bit is the divisions not only occurred between the settlers and the native groups, but the factions within the American government. There was incentives, strong incentives to expand West, especially for slaveholders and slave states which was counteracted by many Whigs and eventually Republicans such as Lincoln, and the importance of this division in terms of expanding West between the North and the South would eventually culminate in the Civil War. But this idea was rampant throughout the age imperialism, and the underlying topics of the white man's burden and colonization are other topics I strongly recommend all listeners look further into. But looks like we're out of time for today. Thanks for listening. Big thanks to Ms. Duarte for exploring this topic with me. Tune in next week for a discussion on... Do we know what we're talking about next week? Well, Dean, I was going to leave that up to you. You're in charge here. Okay, how about this? How about the role of Benicia's arsenal in the Civil War? Since we left off on Civil War topics, I like that a lot. How, how do you think about that? Oh, fantastic. I enjoyed that very much. All right, so you can check the museum website archives online at www.benishahistoricalmuseum.org for podcasts, images, and narratives, and be sure to visit the museum at 2060 Camel Road when it reopens. If you wish, donate online, and be sure to like us on Facebook. Remember, the history of California is written in the story of Benicia.